0: This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am so delighted and honored to be here today with my adult, lifelong, great friend, Dr. John Fielder. So, John, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, thank you for having me. So, um, uh, John, before we get into your uh, chosen passage, which is um, the passage you chose is uh, Genesis uh, 50, 19. Why don't you tell us all um, about your background and who you are?
1: Well, I'm a medical doctor and I have been working in Africa since 2002, based in Kenya and Malawi, currently in Kenya.
0: Now, I I remember you called me in 2001, probably, and you said uh, you had just finished the Johns Hopkins residency program. I think you were the top resident in the program. And you said to me, I have a choice. I could be doctor number 700,000 in the United States, but I'm a Christian. And as such, I've determined that I want to be the indispensable source of care for AIDS victims in Africa.
1: Well, throughout my medical school training and and my residency training, I, I did really feel a call. And initially, I took a year off and I worked in India, in Calcutta, but I had a medical school mentor who had taught medical school in Uganda in the 1980s and had also witnessed the rise of the HIV epidemic. And I really, my interests turned toward East Africa, and that's how I ended up in Kenya at the time.
0: So it's 2001, um, and you decide to become a Christian missionary devoting your life to serving the poorest people in the world in the most difficult, conceivable conditions for a doctor, or for that matter, for anybody else. What does it mean to be a missionary in, in your sense, in your life, in your lived experience the last 20 years? Well, it was 2002
1: when I first came to Kenya after finishing my training and you know, it was at the heart of the 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 HIV epidemic before treatment was really available to many people at all. You know, part of my Christian calling was to to confront that suffering and and to witness to God's love, uh, the way same way I had experienced it as a Christian. Of course, as a Christian I experienced that through Jesus Christ. And I had a a Colleague who was here before I was, and he spoke compellingly about about the work and the need to do something about the AIDS epidemic. And so I I just really felt strongly and felt strongly called to do
0: something about that. So in the course of your calling, you given up not only all the you and all the other Christian missionary physicians have given up not only all the uh, luxuries of the West, but all of what most of us, especially me, would consider that necessities in order to follow your calling to uh, serve the poor. Yet when a lot of people hear hear the term missionary, probably the common definition would be you'd assume that the missionary, what what does a missionary do? A missionary tries to convert people to his religion. Yet um, you and I have spoken uh, every day for almost the last 20 years. Now, there were periods when you were in Kenya and Malawi when you were um, inaccessible by phone. So accepting those periods almost every day, and yet you've never, of course, tried to convert me or anybody else or all the other missionaries that, that I know through you. And uh, it's been a blessing to know many, and it has been many. Um, none of them have tried to convert anybody in a conventional sense. So what does it mean to be a missionary?
1: Well, the, the answer to that question, what it means to be a missionary is is going to vary by the individual and the and the context. One definition is that a person sent out by a Christian community to witness to God's love. About the issue of conversion, we preach with words and we live out our faith in deeds, and some people hear those words and see those deeds and decide that they want to join the Christian movement, and, and others say, no thanks, that's not for me. But We continue to serve those people regardless of their decision. And I think sometimes that's a real misunderstanding. You know, a lot of mission hospitals serve a lot of non-Christian people. And often mission hospitals are invited into places where there are predominantly non-Christian people because of the the reputation for compassion and competence that that mission hospitals and, and other missionary institutions often have.
0: And speaking of competence, so, uh, John, you and I also, of course, as you know, uh, in 2010 started African Mission Healthcare, which you lead to uh, support the work of Christian missionary doctors around the continent in uh, clinical care, infrastructure and training. And talking about competence, one of the great Christian missionary doctors, Tom Katena, in the Nuba Mountains, uh, I think it was two years ago, for a budget of $750,000, he saw 130,000 outpatients did 2,000 operations, including both major and minor, and took care of between five and 7,000 inpatients with everything from malaria to pneumonia to leprosy to a host of cancers, prenatal care, vaccinations, and HIV care, all of that for under a million dollars. So when you talk about efficiency, um, those numbers are, uh, well, they tell the whole story. So uh, it's just been um, remarkable to get to know so many missionaries through you and to realize that at least from what I've learned from missionaries and what they've told me and what I've observed is that um, these are people who are um, living as God and as they think Jesus would want them to live. That is by serving the poorest people in the world and bringing the best possible medical care and delivering astonishing results. So John, tell us, why did you choose um, of any passage in the Torah, Genesis fifty twenty? Well, I think
1: it'd be good to rehearse the story just briefly, and that is that... Joseph is now the state minister for Pharaoh, and he has helped his family, including the brothers who threw him down the well, to get food. His father has recently died, and that, in the eyes of his brothers, has left them unprotected. And they believe that now Joseph, full of revenge and uh, possessing power, Mm -hmm. will take it out on them. So starting at fifty eighteen, it says, His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he re- reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So that verse fifty twenty, we often hear it as what man intended for evil, God intended for good to the saving of many lives. And that verse has, one, has been one that i meditated on and thought about at many levels, from the personal to the the church and the role of martyrs in the church, hmm. uh, the social historical level. You know, we could look at, at examples in history, but also at, at the 30,000 foot view of the role of paradox in faith and the Christian faith and the role of Of God's sovereignty, and now you you say you say paradox of faith. What do you mean by that? Well, how how can something meant to harm you lead to something good? How how can something that is may even be evil? How
0: can that lead to to good? Well, it's it's, it's an interesting question because in the Jewish context, that question easily answered itself. Now, as a doctor, you're you're of course familiar with the medical symbol, right? The snake. mm -hmm. So the medical symbol came because man's enemy from the time of Adam and Eve have, of course, been the snake. And then in the book of Numbers, we're being attacked by snakes. And what God says to do is take the snake and put it on a pole. And Moses takes the snake, but he doesn't just take the snake, he takes a copper snake, which copper and snake in the Hebrew sound the same. He basically says, let's take a snaky snake, put it on a pole. In other words, take what ails you and confront it. And almost like a vaccine in that It's the thing that harms you that when uh, procured correctly can actually help you.
1: Right. And so and I I agree with that at a at a deep level. But I think most people at a, you know, just sort of a common sense level would say when they'd rather not have something bad happen to them. Right. Great
0: point. Absolutely right. No question.
1: If I could read to your question about this idea of a paradox or opposites. This is from the second letter to the Corinthians. Hmm. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, and calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And back in my early career in Kenya, during the dark days of the HIV epidemic before treatment was available to a lot of people, we just saw so much death and suffering and sorrow And then that began to change you generously, your brothers, some other people before the U.S. government program started to make some resources available so we could help some people. We started down the road of treating more people Then the U.S. government program came and we're able to help more people. But even with the resources, there were just a lot of sick people. There was a lot of unnecessary death, a lot of young people, a lot of kids. And, you know, I'd go out to the village, I'd go to a church, I'd be in a support group with people, and there still, there was this heavy sorrow, but then it was moving toward rejoicing. And as people got better again, and people pulled together, they got up and they walked, and they got out to the fields again, and they returned to school, and they could support their families and raise their kids. And... Yes, we lost way too many people along the way. Nobody, nobody, not the healthcare workers and not the patients themselves for sure would ever choose to be sick like that or abused or neglected or forgotten. No one would choose that. But that's the world in which we live. And yet I look back on that time as as one of the most sacred in my life. And despite everything that our organization has been able to do, you know, working with you and people like my friend, Jonathan Weendy, what what we've been able to do. I I still look back at that as the really the most precious, because if you're going to be a healer and you're going to, you've got to walk with people. You've got to at least open yourself to at least a tiny bit of what they're feeling. It's not like here. It's not like the United States where you're in an office, people come to the office, you see them, Certainly, there's suffering and sadness in the clinic, but then people go home. You're not going to see them again. Here, we were in the community. We visited people in their homes. We visited in the churches, and we knew I mean, these. This disease was affecting entire families, entire communities. And if you want to be a healer, you got to open yourself up to that, and it's going to lead to sorrow.
0: Well, I was going to say that's that's perhaps what it means to be a missionary, because you know the Bible tells us to walk in His ways, and uh that's exactly what what you were doing and what you are doing.
1: There's um this idea of of God's sovereignty and again I I'm not wanting to push this verse farther than it can go um in in individuals lives and we we, we said at the outset that you know there have been people who have intended evil and they've accomplished evil and you you can't make anything good come out of that. Right. But it is a hopeful verse. So for for Christians, if you listen to the preachers and the theologians, they'll talk about this verse and Joseph as what's called, in, in theological terms, a prefigurement of Christ. So for Christians, there is the sorrow that occurred on Good Friday, when obviously people like Pontius Pilate meant Jesus' harm, but then there is the good that came on Easter Sunday. So it's again, that, that paradox and tension that what appears to be uh, meant for harm can actually be to our good. And there's a story from West Africa that really inspires me. And, and I speak, and I think it, it speaks to this deep sense that some people have, and, and I'm afraid I don't have it like I should, but that some people have of God's sovereignty. There's a, a, a writer named Richard Preston, who's written about Ebola and these hot viruses. And he wrote, he wrote the f- first book decades ago. And he, he wrote another book last year called Crisis in the Red Zone. And uh, you're familiar with some of the folks that he profiles in Liberia uh, who faced the, the Ebola crisis at ELWA Hospital, where some missionaries and Doctors Without Borders had Ebola treatment units. But a lot of his stories actually come from Sierra Leone. There was a loss of fever hospital. Loss of fever is a hemorrhagic fever like Ebola that is uh epidemic or endemic to West Africa. The the healthcare workers there were much better prepared than than almost anyone else to deal with Ebola. And there was a nurse there, a Sierra Leonean Christian nurse named Mbalu Foni. She's known as Auntie Mbalu. And Richard Preston tells her story and she knew what was coming. She was very competent, very experienced. Uh, dealing with these kinds of viruses. And she expressed a deep sense of God's will and purpose for her life and for uh, what it would mean to face these kinds of viruses. And she had this saying, God holds in God. What does that mean? Well, he describes it this way. It means that God holds all the power and keeps his plans hidden until events come to pass. And isn't that a an amazing description of the of the story that we're focused on from Genesis today. And she had that sense of God's sovereignty. It wasn't fatalism. She was good at what she did. She was very experienced, a million times more experienced than myself in, in dealing with these kinds of situations. And she stayed at her post. And despite her skills, she still contracted Ebola and she died. But she had this... It just comes through in the pages. She just had this supreme confidence in in God's sovereignty, right? It's always a uh, you're walking a tightrope there between between fatalism and trust. But for her, she was she was on the side of trust.
0: And she did her job, and I'm sure she did it well. What you're saying about the paradox in uh, fifty twenty is very interesting because in in Hebrew, we have an expression gonul tova, which means everything's for the good. But in fact, everything's not for the good. Some things are unambiguously and irredeemably bad. Now, perhaps it's helpful when dealing with a misfortune or a tragedy or even a catastrophe. Of course, it's helpful to try to salvage some good from that terrible set of circumstances. But sometimes it's just impossible because some things are just irredeemably bad. And I think that's the paradox that you're identifying here in uh, 50-20.
1: Yeah. Uh, y- you know, as we said before, and it, it's, it is an appropriately sensitive topic because I have not so far in my life suffered like that. I, I have not been the victim of someone really trying to harm me. I, I mean, I did almost have a, a big rock enter my face at 30
0: miles an hour in a riot in Malawi, but. And you have been stuck with HIV needles when you've been serving patients.
1: Well, I've been splashed with fluids. I haven't been stuck with a needle, thank God. But it's nothing like what so many people have gone through, and so I want to be sensitive to to say that you know we we just can't cookie cutter this this verse onto every every situation. Right. But you're you're right that if bad things never happened, we we wouldn't be living in a broken creation. That's the world in which in which we live. I think for many Christians, we would look. And say, for example, if you look at the, the early church under the Roman Empire and, and look at some of the, the early church martyrs, many Christians would say, well, from the perspective of decades or even hundreds of years later, that those, there's a saying in, in Christian history, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. But when you're living it right then, yes, it, it can seem unredeemable. It, it can seem
0: uh so infinitely painful but here we have Joseph saying that even being thrown into a pit without water and it says not only without water the text says without water and without anything it ended up being good but what you're saying is it didn't have to end up good in fact it was unlikely for it to end up to for it to have ended up good and uh it's not only insensitive but it's wrong of us to say that all situations like that of Joseph which happened Tragically all the time would end up with anything positive in them, let alone with the extraordinary fortune that joseph enjoyed
1: yeah yeah, it goes back to the comment that you made before that the passage is a hopeful one, and so we hope we we pray that these situations are redeemed. yeah you, know, you know, I already told one story about Ebola there's another one from Uganda. this is from northern Uganda, there was a Ugandan doctor working at a a mission hospital when Ebola uh, broke out there. His name was Matthew Luquia. And he was actually a student of my medical school mentor who had worked in Uganda uh, before he came back to teach in the U.S. And Ebola hit at a time when Uganda was um, much poorer, even than it is today. And so the ability for this rural mission hospital to deal with this catastrophe was very limited. And Matthew Luquia, the staff was very afraid Uh, in some ways. I think it's a little bit like what's going on with coronavirus. You know, the staff is afraid. It's a new disease. They don't have adequate protection. There's no good treatment. And yet, of course, Ebola has a a much higher case fatality rate. And Matthew stood up in front of the staff and said, look, um, if you don't stay... And we and we don't confront this together. Then when you get sick, who's going to be here to help you? So he he stayed and he led the hospital, and he was going to be the future leader of the hospital. There was a missionary couple who had started the hospital. The the surgeon wife had died actually of HIV after she was stuck during a procedure with a needle. She ended up dying, and they, but they were looking to Matthew to to lead the hospital and. He ended up succumbing to Ebola. It was, you know, he left behind a, a family. Uh, he left behind a bereaved community. There's a, a, a wonderful article about about this by Blaine Harden in the Washington Post from around 2000 called "The San, uh, Dr. Matthew's Passion. And I cannot imagine the sorrow and the pain that the family in the hospital and community went through and are still going through, even though it was two decades ago. I read that and was profoundly moved. And it helped to inspire me and to further my conviction that I needed to come to Africa and help. You you read about, read about the situation they had so few doctors. And so the family may not know that, but his story has inspired me for two decades.
0: So all the hundreds of thousands or even millions of people who've been touched by your work derives from that of this doctor whose family may not even know that he was an inspiration at all to you or even known to you. Now, uh, what about the story inspired you to really devote your entire life to service of the poor in, it seems, very much the same way that he did?
1: Well, I've been fortunate that I've had a number of inspirations in, in my life and I, I have shared with you before when I was in medical school and took time off that I had an intensely spiritual experience in which I felt as if there was a, a hook in my chest in my heart that could physically literally pulling me forward. so in for us Christians we would say that you know that's the Holy Spirit. Where were
0: you when you had this experience?
1: If you can believe it I was driving down the road from medical school in Houston, from, from medical school to home. And, you know, I had was very unsettled about some matters. Why was I becoming a doctor? What was this all about? And so I had been considering this kind of move or service to take some time off, but it was while driving down the road, it was visceral. It was palpable. This sense, almost like the vehicle was being pulled itself forward and, and me in it. So I bring that up that I had you know, I had this mentor who was also Matthew Lu- Luquia's teacher. I had other inspirations in my life. And I certainly had the example of Jesus and the idea that uh he's he's serious about what he says, about what he means about commitment to his path and his service. But this was an important story for me then. I read it while I was a resident in medical school. So And and I've actually preached on his story to my colleagues in Malawi and said, you know, everybody should know the name of this doctor. He was a Ugandan doctor. You should know his name here in Malawi. Everyone should know his name. And the fact that he he certainly has been an inspiration and a hero to people who've known him or known about him, does that cover up somehow this intense pain that his family, his bereaved family was left with? No, you you can't erase that, right? But so the redemption may come much further down the line
0: in ways that you may not even know
1: because he, his family That's doesn't right. even know. Um, That's there, There's with you know in the in the Gospels. I think this is the King James version. It says, "Except a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it bears great fruit." And so, I mean, it's a you know it's an important part of the Christian faith about dying dying to self or even literally physically dying or suffering in some way. And again, there's that that paradox, that tension. What's a bad thing? Dying
0: can actually lead to life. Well, as it apparently has with uh, Dr. Matthew and all the people that you've uh, saved and ameliorated the pain of. So before we we close, I just want to ask you um, one uh, question that I've asked uh, the other guests too, and it relates to um, Andre Malroux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. In the book, he says that um, he ran into uh, a man with whom he served in the war, and he said, "This man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest." And he said to this man, "In all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind?" And the priest thought for a moment and said, "I've learned two things." He said, "One is that everyone is much less happy than they seem, and two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person." So in your 20 years of serving as a missionary physician, mainly in Kenya and Malawi, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I'm sure I could come up with more than two profound lessons
1: that I've been privileged to learn. One is that people are only really happy in community. And in Africa, everybody has somebody. You know, when I was in Malawi, we were seeing a patient Who had severe abdominal pain, and I thought she needed surgery. Our hospital didn't offer surgery at that time, so I had to call another mission hospital. There was a German surgeon there. He said, "You know, send her, send her over, and I will operate." She said, "I I can't go there. I don't have a guardian in Africa. In many African countries, you need to have a guardian uh, to be with you in the hospital uh, to help feed you, cook for you, clean, help, uh, help bathe you, advocate for you, and." She said, I, I don't have anyone. And I, I said to her in Chichewa, everybody in Malawi has somebody. And so I, I called our community health worker and I said, could you please go to her house and find who her guardian is going to be? And within 30 minutes, he was back with her neighbor who didn't even know her that well, knew her. It, it was in an informal settlement, uh, not too far from the clinic. And, you know, I remember talking to, the, to my Malawian colleagues. They say, yeah, everybody in Malawi has family. Everybody has community church village and having been a doctor in the United States, that's not so true all the time in the United States and and you see the power of thick community in Africa. I think allied to that is something from my my favorite novel, which is uh, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Everybody needs powerful memories to keep them going in the face of, of challenges. Uh, Toward the end of the, the book, Alyosha says, you must know that there is nothing higher and stronger and more wholesome and good for life in the future than some good memory, especially a memory of childhood, of home. People talk to you a great deal about your education, but some good, sacred memory preserved from childhood is perhaps the best education. If a man carries many such memories with him into life, he is safe to the end of his days. And if one has only one good memory left in one's heart, even that may sometime be the means of saving us. And. I think it's closely allied to my my other point, which is that having seen the the power of familial and community connections, that I, I see people here face just tremendous hardship, and yet do so with such courage and faith and hope that I think it's it's because they have happy memories and. They want life to be happy again.
0: Well, do they also have unhappy memories uh, to accompany their happy memories? And do they make the choice to focus on the happy memories? I mean, absolutely. You're right. Uh, It's a mix.
1: And there have been people who have been so traumatized that they have PTSD. And it's not simply an issue of choosing to remember one thing or the other. But, you know, when I was working in Malawi, I used to like to request that my colleagues sing Chichewa hymns at chapel and they could just break into beautiful harmony without any practice or rehearsal and it would transport you it would elevate you off the ground and where where does such joy come from it comes from the village it comes from the church it comes from family and faith and it gives people hope why did you want to start the day with those songs because i mentioned they would they would transport you and they would open up a window to another place, to a sacred place, and remind you of why you're getting up in the morning and, and why we moved to Malawi. And because then you had to go down to the clinic and you had to see a lot of sick people with not enough resources. But the, the joy and the hope, it was conveyed in and, and that kind of song, it g- gives you strength
0: well John uh, uh thank you for um, sharing your perspective on Genesis 5020 with us and your experiences as serving as a missionary doctor Malawi and um, thank you for all the God's work that you have done for the last 20 years and you continue to do on behalf of uh, on behalf of those you serve so um thank you well thank you Mark for having me
1: and I I look forward to hearing other guests in this series
0: yes well thank you